Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. So in today's episode, I am speaking to Nova Reed. She is an inspirational speaker, a diversity campaigner, and mentor. She's an advocate for equality and was recently nominated as a positive role model for race equality at the National Diversity Awards for the third year running. She's also a certified NLP life coach. She has an extensive professional background in mental well-being and she's a frequent mentor at the Women of the World Festival in London. She's also regularly invited to speak on the BBC and Sky News on race and diversity matters. I have been learning so much from Nova. I am taking her anti-racism course and I highly recommend that you check that out if you're inspired by this episode and want to learn more. I think she's doing incredible work in the world and we get into topics such as how we can be the change that we want to see in the world. We talk about her anti-racism work and we get into what microaggressions are and why they can be so harmful. We talk about our own unconscious biases which we all have by the way and how we need to start to examine them so that we can overcome them. And I ask Nova how she gets the courage to do the work that she does because she really is putting herself out there doing incredibly brave work. We also get into how to be an ally and what exactly that is. So if you want to get some free resources to help you to become your calmest, happiest and most confident self, you can head over to my website, karmayou.com forward slash free. Enter your email address in there and I'll send you those resources straight away. So let's get into the interview with Nova Reed. This episode is sponsored by my favourite activewear brand, Sweaty Betty. Their all-female design team source the best technical fabrics, which means their products perform under the toughest conditions and feel amazing on your skin. All products are also wearer trialled by female staff to ensure they perform and flatter and fit the female body. If the staff don't love it, it doesn't get made. There are so many activewear brands to shop from, but Sweaty Betty is special because all their products from run and yoga to swim and ski are engineered to last. 
This is not fast fashion, it's high quality. And I have several pieces from Sweaty Betty that I've had for years and I continue to wear and love. Sweaty Betty now has a host of sustainable products, including their Super Sculpt leggings made from post-consumer plastic bottles. Their Italian fleece has been replaced with a recycled cotton blend alternative and they are reducing the amount of consumer packaging sent to customers. Sweaty Betty are offering listeners 20% off when you enter the promo code KARMAYU on their website. You'll also find the link in the show notes. So 20% off at Sweaty Betty when you enter the code KARMAYU. That's C-A-L-M-E-R-Y-O-U. Check out their stuff. I think you're going to love it. Welcome. Nova, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, Can you just explain for people who maybe haven't seen your work before what it is that you do and, and how you got to where you are today? I do so many things. I sometimes struggle to answer this question, but essentially I help people be the change that they want to see in the world. And I do that through anti-racism, education, speaking, training organisations, and also a writer as well. So a bit of a mixed bag, but ultimately it's to help people be the change. Mm, I love that. Yeah, because so many of us, I think, want to do that but don't really know how or don't know how to get started or it's a very kind of inspiring idea to to want to be the change um so i i came across your work because i was looking for somebody that teaches what you teach and i was part of a mastermind with a group of american women um who were very forward thinking and and talking a lot about things like anti-racism work and white supremacy and a lot of the people that they were um, referring to were American Mm. people and I was really looking for for a British person who I could learn about this topic from and then I saw you speak on the Project Love podcast and I knew that you were the, the perfect person to learn about this from. Can you talk a bit more about your... Um, anti-racism work and and what that is for maybe people who don't really know much about that topic. Yeah, so I am a woman who is black and I grew up in what was quite rural Hertfordshire. It's changed now. Um, I grew up in the 80s, so it's a very different place. And I realised from a really young age that I was different and I didn't fit in, but I didn't know why um, until I was about seven years old and um, became aware that I was black and became aware that I was different to the majority of people around me, including the characters I saw in books, uh, the people on TV. And so I guess that was the start of my story in this anti-racism journey Um, because feeling like I didn't fit in, I felt like I didn't belong, I experienced sort of covert racism and also overt being told to go back to my own country having England flags waved at me monkey chants so much Um, and I struggled hugely with my self-esteem as a result of that and I had already learned at the age of seven that my value as a human being somehow wasn't the same as my white peers and so that was kind of a thread that was present and at every single life event became reoccurring. So when I couldn't find hairdressers who worked with Afro hair, um, when I couldn't, when I worked in the acting industry and there was no makeup foundation for my skin tone, um, 
when I was uh, older into my acting journey and doing dance as well, when we had a teacher, I will always remember his name, Bill, Bill Drysdale. He used to dance with the Gene Kellys of this world, so incredible. But he wanted us to wear nude tights and he'd, we were about to do a performance a few days later and he said, right, I need you all in new tights, flesh-coloured tights. And I remember being with my peers on stage and I had to put my hand up to this man that I found very intimidating anyway and say, I, there are no nude tights for my skin tone. And he fundamentally just didn't get it. And he ended up shouting at me and I remember just feeling really embarrassed and humiliated. And on the day of the show, I had to turn up and I wore black tights. And so the same thing happened again. Why are you wearing black tights? Because there's no new tights for me. It was just these tiny little things, these everyday experiences of not being included um, that reinforced that my value as a black woman was not the same. And um, I think it was my wedding. It wasn't, I didn't think, it was my wedding engagement that really spurred me on. It was the same thing. I wanted makeup inspiration. I wanted hair inspiration. I wanted to see what these beautiful wedding dresses would look like on my skin um, and there was nothing. There was just this stark silence. And at that point, I was 30 years old and much more confident in myself. And I was like, I'm not tolerating this anymore. So I started a, a wedding blog initially um, to just talk about that. And my story resonated with, with other women and couples. And then that spiraled to me sort of doing diversity consultancy and then becoming the voice of um, inclusion in an industry that was very homogenous. That then led me to being invited to attend the Royal Wedding with Harry and Meghan. And it's just it's just culminated in that, really, just having very honest and open conversations about race. And before that, I worked in mental health. So I've always been an advocate for the underdog. Mm-hmm. And um, can we touch on the Harry and Meghan thing? I suppose that's something that oh, yes. has happened <laughs> in the media recently. And I know on Instagram, you talked about this and posted um, videos about this. Um, what can you can you share about what you've noticed about about that and what the response has been? I mean, there's so much. Um, what in particular? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose um, a lot of people saying that um, it seems that Meghan has been on the receiving end of racism by the press, mm-hmm. and a lot of other people saying no, that's not true, mm-hmm. and then the kind of debate about this this topic. Yeah. So a lot of the work I do is about. Um, helping people to understand that racism is not an opinion. Um, We have become accustomed to believing that it's something to be debated um, when actually racism is a form of trauma. So I then reframe it in other circumstances of trauma. Do we find ourselves debating whether somebody has experienced trauma or not? And the answer is mostly probably not. Um, But for me, the... um, It was evidenced in the fact that when Harry and Meghan first started dating, they were receiving racism and racial undertones from the press. Harry um, initiated a statement asking, calling for it to stop. So the evidence is there, um, but that seemed to have been ignored. And then what we forget is that um, race discrimination and racism is learned behaviour. It's not something we're born with. It's a byproduct of um, existing and operating in a country that legalised slavery and oppression for over 400 years. That's going to leave a residue on 
on us. So whether we don't consciously think we are racist, we will have inherent racist programming and racial biases within us. And now we've learned that racism is wrong, we're not... Well, there are a few, a select few, who will express their racism overtly, but the majority of us won't or would hate to be accused of being racist. But that suppressed prejudice, that learned behaviour, hasn't just gone away. It's still there. So it comes out in the behaviour and it could be seen um, in some of the press articles, the comparisons of Megan doing comparative things to Kate and receiving abuse from it where Kate received praise. Um, and so it's not the overt that we're looking for. It's these subtle undertones, like the language that's been used to describe Megan as being exotic. The use of the word exotic is synonymous with fetishizing and describing black women. And if you look at the dictionary definition of exotic, it's used to describe zoo animals. So it's these undertones that people are talking about um, that are harder to spot than the overt. Yeah, I think that's one of the the things that I really took. I think it was in your TED talk where you're, you're talking about it's not actually the the Ku Klux Klan type racists that are causing the most harm. It's actually the the microaggressions and the smaller things that add up to a big difference, yeah. and that actually that has a big effect on people's mental health. Yeah. Um, can you talk a bit about that? The kind of the yeah. So um, it's 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 why I do anti-racism work because I think we become accustomed to only associating racism with a single, over intentional and conscious act of hate. So when we start talking about racism now in modern, well, I say modern terms, they're not modern. Um, in more in wider terms. People think that if it wasn't conscious or intentional, that it's not racism. But actually, racism exists as a system of oppression. And so if we look at the definition of systemic racism, you you will have a better understanding of what I'm talking about. So it's the everyday discrimination. It's the racial stereotypes. It's the assumptions that we make about people, um, whether they're successful or not, whether they might cause harm or not whether they might be a criminal when we think of knife crime what's the first image that comes to our mind of a person holding a knife what do they look like what's their race um and it's unpicking those biases and um seeking out whether they are truthful or not or whether you're just perpetuating a narrative that holds people back so microaggressions are a form of everyday discrimination and they mostly happen on a subconscious level but sometimes they're also conscious and they are a way of making us they're a way of um, showcasing that somebody doesn't quite fit in or somebody communicating that somebody is misplaced oh where are you from even though I'm speaking the Queen's English I'm from Britain no where are you really from those types of things are microaggressions and wanting to touch somebody's hair if they've got afro hair can I touch your hair or just touching it that's a microaggression mm-hmm. So it's those things that people are maybe unconsciously not even realising that they're causing harm. Yeah. And the fact, I know you said, you know, you teach a lot about how the fact that we don't examine our biases is perpetuating this. Yes. And I don't know if it was you that said it or I don't know if this is just a common saying that as white people, we don't recognise it because we just have grown up in this culture where there is this 
these unconscious biases. So, yeah. you know, we we think of ourselves as good people mm-hmm. um, and we may well be good people, but it means that we don't then examine our unconscious biases. Yes. And then nothing changes. And I think yeah. that's um, that's where we've got stuck because if we get stuck in the, the one... Um, definition of racism which was first founded in 1902 I need to add if we get stuck on that it's horrible people in the Ku Klux Klan or these horrible far right groups, they're bad people someone like me even remotely suggesting that we all have some form of racist programming within us as an unavoidable byproduct of being born into a system that legalised oppression Um, we want to reject, well I'm not like that no, I'm going to reject that. I'm going to not listen to what you say. And it's the not listening, it's the defensiveness, um, and it's taking offence from that that prevents us from actually seeking to, like, oh, my gosh, how am I... How can I help be part of the solution? I had no idea. Right, now I know. How, what can I do to help? And the defensiveness and the denial and the offence gets in the way of actually helping be part of change and I think what makes microaggressions so dangerous is like those tiny examples there are so many the tiny examples that I've just given you um, they happen so often sometimes several times a day and um, there is research that shows it has the same impact on the brain as seen in soldiers who have served in war who are experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder so the reason why they are so damaging is because of the frequency the consistency and the fact that we they're not addressed they just keep happening over and over and again every single day um by well-meaning people who don't Mm. generally know that they are contributing yeah so it's just someone or people constantly sending us message that you don't belong or something you know and it can of course make a big difference I know one of the things you mentioned in your course which I'm a member of is and is brilliant thank you so much for making it um the Harvard implicit bias test and can you explain what that is for people I don't want to give too much away yeah (laughs) sure sure but I mean I can't actually remember when this test came out it's been around for years but it is a test that Harvard um it's the most extensive um test to explore what our biases are and there are everything from exploring your racial biases right through to gender class Um, and it's an invitation for you to explore where your unknown biases might be and so there's a series of tests you need to do and at the end of it um, it gives you more information about where your biases might be and I think having bringing um, your subconscious your unconscious bias to the conscious means that you can actively do something to change it if you have negative associations with people who are black as a result of doing this bias test um, or people of a, a lower class than you then well that is an invitation that you need to reframe those negative programming you have with positive right go and spend your time seeking out authors seeking out experts who are from a lower class who are doing incredible things who are elevating who are you know go and seek out doctors who are black whatever it is so that you start reprogramming that negative association with something that's positive so then you're not perpetuating these stereotypes because it comes out in our behavior i think that's the thing we think it doesn't but it does everything from who we want to work with who we want to promote who we fear 
who we automatically trust, who we undermine. Um, it's, yeah, it affects everyday communication. Yeah, it's, it's reminding me of um, the, the work of Carl Jung that says when we suppress mm. things, it comes out in other ways yes. and we need to bring everything to the surface to realise what we're dealing with and then we can then we can heal and then we can, you know, clean up our behaviour and our um, what we're doing. Completely. But, yeah, it is an interesting test. I've done it and it's not a nice thing to admit that you have biases and... I know that a lot a lot of people that start to look into this are often kind of horrified when yes. they realise that they they have these racist thoughts or racist mm. views and um, it's quite uncomfortable. Mm. It is, it is uncomfortable, uncomfortable. But I would say, yes, yes, that means you're listening. <laughs> and also, um, as, a, as a black woman, as somebody who is in the black and brown community, it's equally uncomfortable trying to navigate day-to-day life dealing with being othered and so you know it's necessary for change Mm. it's necessary Mm. we we're not going to make change in our comfort zones it's just not possible yeah Mm, absolutely yeah and and i think we need to be brave enough to look at ourselves basically and do it because um there was a quote that I'm, I've heard quoted by people. I don't know if it's you quote, but your liberation is bound up with mine. I've not that one wasn't mine, but that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so this, yeah, this... absolutely. It's, the argument is if you um, ultimately we want the same thing. We want we want peace. We want good health. We want happiness and joy in our lives, and we just want to be able to live in peace. And in, if there is a group of people who are not able to do that, then that has a knock-on effect because if I... I use it in terms of work. If somebody is um, in a minority identity, so they are black, LGBTQ, and they are not given access to the same opportunities, they are the recipient of daily microaggressions, they are... Other, they are made to feel like they don't belong every single day, that impacts what you bring to the table. That impacts your confidence, your self-esteem, creativity, innovation. And if that is stifled, then that has a knock-on effect with the work, with your community, with how you engage with relationships. So if everybody is able to shine and be themselves and thrive ripple effect I think the socio-political climate is a great example of that mm. we're not thriving right now and it has a knock-on effect on the economy that's so interesting yeah I'm reading a book at the moment called The Spirit Level mm. I can't remember who it's by but um, it's all about kind of inequality and talking about how the, when there's more equality in a society the whole society does better mm. um, the, the places with less equality do worse yeah. so we need to all rise up together. How do you how do you find the courage to do the work that you do? Because you know, I've seen you put yourself out there, you I imagine come up against a lot of difficult opinions and that sort of thing. How do you how do you cope with it? Um I do it because I I'm gonna answer this in two two parts. I do it because I got so sick of being at the effect of Race discrimination, um, everyday other in 
microaggressions I thought it's so intolerable for me I need to be part of the change in some in some way so I consciously chose to do something about it how I do it is because my before I started working for myself well I've had quite an eclectic career I used to be uh, an actress and singer which I think helps with the public speaking and having courage to stand and be visible but after that I worked in mental health um, as a well-being uh, caregiver for just under 10 years and I was working I also worked with, in disability during that time the, t- the two intersected obviously and um, during that time I had to go through a lot of self-interrogation and a lot of personal development to be able to do that role to be able to hold space for people who are having suicidal thoughts who are clinically um, depressed or who have bipolar disorder schizophrenia whatever it may be I was working with some very very vulnerable human beings and so in order for me to support them and help them um, learn to manage and overcome periods of, of extreme illness I need to go through my own therapy I needed to have clinical supervision every fortnight um, and I was just like a sponge I was just taking in a lot of stuff and so part of the beginnings of um, psychotherapy training is a lot around boundaries mm. managing your professional boundaries making sure that you know if something's if someone brings something up I'm not projecting my own stuff onto them so there's a lot around self-awareness and so I already did that work which I think gave me the foundation to hold difficult spaces and also be present in difficult spaces on the flip side of that, I have regular breaks for self-care. Um, I'm very self-aware. So if I'm becoming fatigued, I know I need to step back. Um, I have to be very boundaried with my contact hours. Um, and equally, I have learned through learning the hard way, I have to be very selective with who I show up to do this work for. So it's not for people that want to debate whether racism exists or not. I'm doing the work for those who already know that it exists and they know that they are complicit by silent default and actually what can I do to help and so doing this work for those people who are in that space is an absolute joy Um, it also means the work is more effective and it's like a ripple effect you can see it working and how they're then having conversation with their peers colleagues family partners Um, it has a knock-on effect Mm. This podcast episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? Therapy has massively helped me in the past to make sense of my thoughts and process my emotions. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating with them in under 24 hours. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counselling that's done securely online. This service is available for clients worldwide and BetterHelp matches you with a counsellor based on what it is that you want to work on and their expertise. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is also available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. And BetterHelp are doing a special offer for Karma U listeners. You get 10% off your first month. When you visit Try BetterHelp, that's better H-E-L-P, dot com forward slash karma you that url again try betterhelp.com forward slash karma you to get 10% off your first month's online counseling
Yeah, wow. And that is an interesting topic about having conversations with people. I've noticed it myself yes. recently. Um, it's funny, it's like suddenly it feels like a light, is, like the penny dropped mm. and suddenly like I'm seeing things everywhere. Yeah. And noticing, like I was talking to someone the other day about this and they were like, oh, well, doesn't everyone experience that? And I was like, that's exactly the thing. <laughs> and you, you can probably explain this better of like, is there something that happens whereby people kind of minimise people's yes. experiences, basically, and just because of, as white people we haven't experienced it, so we think. Yeah. It doesn't, because you yeah. haven't, I'm um, generalising, because you haven't experienced it yourself, then it doesn't exist. It's like, mm. well, just because you haven't experienced it doesn't mean that it is rife and this is a real issue. And there are so many stats, data studies, got race disparity audits, quality act. We've got all of this data that's been collected for years and nothing's changed because what happens when we try to bring up incidences of racism is that it's minimised. Um, you're gaslit, you're made to believe that you're being oversensitive, that it's all in your head, um, when actually we've already got the data um, that shows the impact of not resolving this. And there was a study, I think I mentioned it in my TED Talk, um, that came out, I think a week before my TED Talk. I was like, great, this is going in the talk, um, by the American Academy of Pediatrics, I think. And they were talking about so there were lots of studies at the beginning of this year, actually, and also towards the end of last year, showing how racism in primary schools is increasing. Problematic. We're teaching our behaviour to our children. Um, and that actually, if we care about a world where our children are healthy and happy, we actually need to intentionally take steps to address racism when it is brought up rather than minimising it explaining it away well it wasn't racism it was this it was everything else but racism because it's easier for it to be everything else it's less painful for it to be everything else and so, meanwhile it just continues yeah and so does that happen because we're we don't want to admit that we have these biases and so we suppress it and think it can't be that or is that what happens? I think there's a, um, I don't know how how in depth I want to go, but there is a, a yeah. concept called um, white fragility by a sociologist and author called Dr. Robin D'Angelo. And she's a white lady and she um, was a diversity and inclusion trainer for over 25 years. And she started noticing when she was going into organisations and, and teaching about equality and teaching about racism that she would receive the same defensive responses from the white people who were in the room, so much so she could start to predict patterns of behaviour. So she went away and did research and studies on this. And so it's an element of defensiveness. Um, there is... We've never... We don't, I, so I as a black person was raised to talk about race comfortably. I can say the word black, brown, white without any attachment to it. I just use them as descriptive words. So many of my white peers were taught not to even see colour. So if that's, we're coming from two different starting points. So if you're taught not to even see colour, that means by default, you're not recognising the way that discrimination exists and the way that it is. I am impacted by it. One, because it's not your lived experience, but two, because you're choosing not to see it because you've been taught that by seeing it and by focusing on it is a bad thing when actually it's very necessary. Like with any condition, like with gender inequality, um, 
with trying to find a cure for cancer, we don't solve the problem by not shining a spotlight on it. In fact, that's what we need to do first before we can really deal, understand what we're dealing with. And we don't do that with race. We don't even talk about it. So if, we're, if people are uh, thinking that it's a good thing to say, oh, I don't see colour, but actually it's not. there are these unconscious things or, you know, suppressed um, biases and thoughts and beliefs, then things are just going to continue yeah. as they and, are. Yeah, and also it's, it's, it's untruthful because, of course, you see colour. Even there was a study done on people who are blind and even they hold racism. It's fascinating. So <laughs> mm, <laughs> it just wow. it fundamentally yeah. doesn't make sense. But, yeah, it's a, it's a common way of, of, for some of my white peers mm. to have been raised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. If people are thinking that they want to learn more about this and educate themselves more or be the change, are there things that you tend to suggest people do first? Not prescriptively, but generally speaking, people who find my work have already had some kind of awakening. They've either read Reni Edo Lodge's book, Why I'm No Longer Talking About Race. Um, some people found me after doing Layla Saeed's we, Me and My White Supremacy Challenge, which has just come out as a, a book. Um, and other people are just curious because they want to raise socially conscious children. Um, and whether they're raising white children or mixed uh, heritage children or black children, they're like, I don't want them repeating the same generational cycles that we have continued to repeat for centuries. Um, so how do I stop it? How, I, I don't want to pass things that I've not dared to uncover onto my children. So how can I raise them to be a kind-hearted human being? So I often find that a lot of the people who come to my work are mostly women, mothers, um, but not exclusively, who don't who want to raise socially conscious children who are open and kind-hearted and can help be great allies for people who are in minority identities. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah, so that is often a motivator as well. Um, but generally speaking, they would have, they're not, they would have come either by following somebody on Instagram and having conversations or, or, or reading. They would have done a little bit of reading before they come to me. And you, and you mentioned um, being an ally there. Um, what can you explain what it means to be an ally? If people haven't heard that term even before, what would you describe? I might that flip as? that round. Can I ask you that question? So I would say it was someone that is educating themselves, looking at themselves and then being alert to how they can play a role in starting to change things. Yeah. It's supporting, um, it's being, it's just waking up, it's being aware of, of um, how our lives are compounded and um, are different because of the societal privileges that some groups of people will have based purely on who they are and what and how they were born and there's no blame there it's just fact so um, white privilege is a term that uh, was founded on a 40-year analysis a 40-year study by somebody called Theodore Allen and he um, was an academic I think he was also an activist during the civil rights movement and he did this huge in-depth research that found out that it was originally called white skin privilege, that people who were white 
um, were getting more societal access and more societal privilege under the same social economic circumstances than people who people of colour and that was done over 40 years so it's recognising that as a result of having white skin and living in a white majority country you are not compounded by you're not impacted by racism you're not impacted by systemic discrimination um, because of the colour of your, your skin or your name the same way um, as an able-bodied person, I have automatic societal privileges because I can travel freely without having to worry about whether my wheelchair can literally physically fit through a door because there are so many buildings that are not wheelchair accessible. So those are the kinds of things that I talk about when I talk about privilege. It's bringing it back to the fact, the detail. Um, and being an ally is recognising that those things exist because in order for a group of people to be continuously systemically oppressed and disadvantaged, it means a group of people had to be advantaged. And that's the component we don't look at and, a, and an ally is aware of what the advantages are and, um, and also see the disadvantages so they can help communicate and be part of change um, and help in helping other people understand. Yeah, I suppose... Um it's something that when you're white, you don't think about. You just take it for you don't granted. Have to. Yeah. yeah. So you, which is a privilege in itself, I suppose. Um, so many things that we take for granted, like you mentioned before, the hairdressers and mm. people not questioning where you're from and that sort of thing. Um, and then when you start to learn about it more, you realise what other people have to 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 deal with and yeah. makes makes you realise. But I suppose people can get defensive about that can't they I mm -hmm. think they might say that oh I, I'm white but I grew up on a council estate how mm -hmm. am I privileged and it, but it's a separate thing isn't it it's a separate it's thing so there we be, the word privilege is quite loaded I also think we've got huge issues with class in the UK that have not been addressed either so you hear the word privilege and you most automatically think wealth or greed um, but when we're talking about white privilege, and when I, I we use the original term white skin privilege, it's purely based on the societal privileges somebody gets because of the colour of their skin. So you can be somebody who um, lives on a council estate in a working class background who is white and receive um, discrimination because of that, but you won't receive racism on top of it. And that's what we're talking about. That's what the study is showing. Like you can, you will not experience systemic discrimination because of the colour of your skin on top of that. Mm. And that's mm. all it is. It's just acknowledging that. And it doesn't, it shouldn't take away from our own individual experiences of uh, poverty or abuse or, you know, not being treated fairly. It doesn't take away from any of that. It's just acknowledging that actually you've not been compounded by systemic racism on top. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, wonder, I'm wondering about this. If, if It's something we need to get better at as human beings in general, but being okay with kind of being criticised or yeah. being okay with being wrong without taking it so personally in a way, sort of looking at the thing in itself and being able to work through it and kind of listen to that rather than becoming defensive and yeah. kind of going on the attack. I think it's I think it's key, it's key, and I talk about it a lot. And there are there's there um, in sort of anti-racism work. There are um, there that we get we get to dig around in why this is happening. Um, 
why this defensiveness, this guilt, this is happening we get to unpick that a bit more um it's impossible to do that in this podcast today but there is a reason why these things are happening and part of it is because it feels like your identity is being attacked and the quickest form of defense is to go on the attack so then we're just attacking no one's listening <laughs> no one's actually helping to deal with the the problem at hand and that's why we just perpetuate and continue these cycles and racism takes on this more undercurrent mutated form because we've actually not expressed it we've not been able to hold conversations interracial conversations so i can talk about this stuff with my black and brown colleagues till the cows come home but not so much i've only started really talking to my white friends about this stuff in the past 18 months to two years um, and I'm someone who is confident um, have an understanding of this but it's it's difficult because we've never had the ground or the platform to to have these conversations and I think just a willingness to be uncomfortable to listen even if something triggers you and just to sit with it without saying anything um, because then we get to a point where we can start hearing somebody's pain or trauma and validating that experience. And that is a key component to healing. I think all of this generally is about mass healing. We need it desperately. Um, and that starts with a desire to be uncomfortable and deeply, deeply listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you say about the friend, because I was hearing from someone, a black woman, who said that she could never really connect fully mm. with a white friend. Yeah. And there was always this thing that they... And it felt weird to her. She wanted to connect more, but she felt like she couldn't yeah. completely kind of be herself, I suppose, or talk yeah. about things that were going on for her. It's really common, mm. and I've experienced it too, and, and that's meant that some relationships um, have not survived, especially as I've gone leaned more into anti-racism work, mm. because I'm now being myself and not feeling frightened about having these conversations as I did before um, and it makes some people extremely uncomfortable but if I can't be myself around you then that's not good for my mental health mm. um, so yeah it's very much about being able to be who you are and for so many years um, the black community in the UK, unique to the UK, have been taught to assimilate as a form of survival. Keep your head down, don't say anything, be grateful, Windrush generation, come over to another country, be grateful, be humble, keep your head down, don't rock the boat. Um, that impacts behaviour. Mm-hmm. Mm. Do you... Um is there anything else that you think is important for people to know um, that you want to share as like a final point about your work and and what what people can do maybe to start their journey into this? Maybe you can share about your your courses and okay. um, things like that. Well, I think it's um, we as a, a society are on a cusp of change. I think we're all feeling the discomfort of an uncertain political climate. We're seeing. Um, sort of the increase in uh, conversations about race and also the increase in race, hate crime, disability, hate crime, all of these things. There was a real increase in the fear against the other and it can feel really unsettling. So we're on the cusp of change and we need allies more than ever now. We need people to help um, bridge the gap, to understand more and um, 
to help us because racism is a form of trauma. And I think if anyone is consciously aware of that and um, no longer wants to contribute to that, then I strongly urge that they engage in anti-racism work. It's not about being a good or bad person. It's about being someone who wants to be part of a very, very powerful and uh, necessarily necessary solution. So, um, yeah, I have a I have a TEDx talk. That that might be a good starting point. Um, not all superhero heroes wear capes. <laughs> have a listen to that. Have a look at that. Um, and I also have an online anti-racism course, which you're doing, Chloe, where we can just go deep and wide with understanding who we are, self-interrogation, self-exploration, and also um, understanding more of the context about why this stuff is happening now and what we can do. Because I often think people feel like ending racism is this big thing that oh, it's too overwhelming, but actually there are tiny things we can do on our everyday that don't have to be um, confrontational, that can be really, really helpful and healing and strategic um, if we just have a desire. So it's an online anti-racism course. And um, I've just launched Courageous Courage, um, which is for people who are starting their journey as being an ally, but feel really uncomfortable about having conversations, calling people in, having conversations with family. And so it's figuring out how to do that without triggering some kind of anxiety attack and so that you can be effective in your allyship as well because it does take courage this work absolutely takes courage so yeah just speaking to that I think that's so relevant for for myself and for probably people listening a lot of people I think listen to this who are kind of people pleasers Mm. and scared of so scared of saying the wrong thing but also want to help want to help but would let sort of that fear hold them back and I think knowing you know educating yourself I suppose is is kind of the first step and listening and it's key and I know mm. fear feels huge and it can feel like it's all consuming um but your fear is not bigger than being a part of a solution to end racism and end trauma mm. it's it's temporary it will dissipate and the more you do this the more you understand the easier it becomes because when you come up with challenge you'll have the data you'll have the stats you'll have the facts um, that can back up arguments and then it feels less like a confrontation and more like a conversation and for me that's where change happens where you're not blaming or attacking anyone for their views you're just helping them widen their understanding which generally changes their behavior Mm-hmm. And yeah, just to, to to reiterate that people should watch your <laughs> TED talk. I had goosebumps at the end. It's really moving and um, inspiring. And your course is really interesting. And lots of videos where you're talking about the history and um, you know case studies and experiences. So it really gives you this kind of um, a de- uh, kind of an understanding of of the whole situation I guess and, and how we can start to to change things so thank, thank you, you and thank you for being part of it as well um, because that in itself takes courage so I acknowledge that um, yeah we need more allies <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and um, is your Instagram is that your name no, no yeah so Reed, my Instagram is Nova Reed official which is okay. R-E-I-D and um, I'm mostly on there 
I, my website is snovareed.com as well to see a full range of some of the services that I offer. Amazing. Thank you so much for speaking to me and thanks for everything that you do. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you gained a lot from this episode. Come on over to Instagram and let me know what are you taking from this episode. Find me at Chloe Brotheridge. And I would love it if you would leave me a review in the podcast app or in iTunes. Subscribe to the podcast, leave me a rating. And is there someone in your life that would really benefit from this podcast? You can let them know by sharing this podcast. I'd be so, so grateful. So I'm just wishing you a wonderful week ahead, sending you loads of love. Hopefully you'll tune in again and I'll see you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.